Hi, I'm Greg from Omaha. I'm Michael from Baltimore. Hey, I'm Dave from Portland, Oregon. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Jeannie Darce. Her new book is called Fiction Ruined My Family. It's a memoir of growing up in, well, in a funny way, the kind of family that you picture from a a novel or television program about East Coast literary scions with a lot of Persian rugs. Only um, that, but unsuccessful. (laughs) Um, Jeannie, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. It's good to be here. I want to first give our audience a sense of your parents who are, uh, besides obviously you, the central figures in this book. Um, First of all, let's talk about your mom. Um, She seems to have come from a world of a very... uh, a very classic kind of middle American semi-richness to the point where she literally was a competitive horse jumper. I believe that's the technical term, right? Horse jumper? Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, her family was uh, not literary. Uh, her father um, was an ophthalmologist, had a very successful practice in St. Louis, went to school in Europe, etc. And um, so... They, you know, they were sort of nouveau a bit. And my dad really was more the old St. Louis family with the lineage and the, you know, he was the reason that we were in the social register. And so uh, success and money obviously meant a lot more to my mom than it did to my dad. Your your father uh, became in some ways a very successful writer. When you were a young kid, he was writing for some of the best publications of their kind that have ever existed, you know, like Harper's and stuff. Um, But at the same time, the family was like barely financially functional, like just on the edge of financial disaster at all times. Um, When did you first become aware that this situation that your family was in was like a tenuous one, that it wasn't, you know, I think when you're like five years old, maybe you just think that everything's fine no matter what, uh, as long as you're not hungry. Um, but there must have been some point when you realized, oh, wait, maybe this is built on sand and not cement. Yeah, I mean, I think when we um, moved from St. Louis, I was seven. We moved out to Long Island to Amagansett, lived on a farm. There were a lot of creative people around us, artists, writers, um, fishermen's kids, you know, um, and it wasn't until we moved to Westchester to Bronxville. And I guess I was 10 at that time that I realized that, um, other people's parents like went somewhere during the day. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a huge train culture. You know, you see all the dads getting on the train in the morning. And, um, for a while my dad did do that. Um, he worked uh, for as William Paley's speechwriter um, 
for about six months. And so he did. He took this little yellow moped down to the train station, left it there, and took the train into the city. William Paley being the legendary CBS television founder. journalist. Yeah, yeah founder. Um, and um, But then it, 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 you know, I think we bought this house, you know, um, and quickly ran out of money. And so it was, it was really pretty apparent to me once we moved to Bronxville that uh, that um, we weren't the same as other families, that there was a major cash flow problem. There's an interesting transition here at, at this point in your life in that you leave the Midwest to go to Long Island with the idea that this is going to be essentially a writer's retreat for your dad, that your dad is going to go to this um, you know, this this farm that, again, is basically like a, a literary farm and write this novel and be a novelist. And everyone's going to have a great time during this one year period where you're going to hobnob with New York literary celebrities. A- and parts of that do happen. Um, your dad does write a novel and you do hobnob with, and your parents do hobnob with New York literary celebrities. Uh, but then that year is up and your mother's mother has died and all of a sudden you're not going back to the Midwest. You're going to Long Island to try and sort of, I get, I got the feeling that your parents were almost trying to like, Hey, let's see if we can stretch this thing out. Let's see if we can make it. Let's see if we can keep doing this. Yeah. I mean, I think that they, um, they realize we probably can't sustain this in Amagansett, but maybe we can somewhere else. I mean, it, at that time, um, I don't even think anybody used the word the Hamptons. You know, it, it was um, there wasn't really anybody out there in the winter, and um, so it was it was a lot more of an adventure than it probably is now. Um, and I think that they thought, well, the schools probably weren't that great and they needed to get us back into some decent schools. And it had actually turned into two years, about two years. So we, uh, my mom, you know, found this house in Bronxville and it was sort of chosen for its good public school. And the idea was sort of, you know, it's, very, it's obviously probably pretty tough to move back to St. Louis once you've, you know, um, been in New York. And, um, so the idea was that, um, you know, we would buy this house and that my dad would perhaps get a job. And um, that, I mean, if, I feel like my mom's idea was that we were going to be fancy in New York. And we, we were able to do that now that my grandmother had died. So your family had this inheritance and your dad had a real job that involved, you know, the classic putting on a hat and getting on the train to Manhattan. Right. Um, but that... That didn't last that long. When, when did the cracks start to show? You know, I think that job only lasted about six months. And then my dad had other projects and ideas for things that he wanted to do, um, which were fantastic. Again, you know, my dad's a really bright guy. And he had this idea for something called Stylebook, which um, was going to improve your grammar and the style of your writing. And you were going to run it on your computer. My dad actually was one of the first dads to have a computer. I mean, he was 
you know, I remember one of the first dads in the nation. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just remember, I remember them having people over for drinks and dinner. And I remember being like, Steve, let's go upstairs and see that computer, you know, and all the dads would like go upstairs with their drinks. Where's the vacuum tubes? <laughs> go upstairs with their drinks and look at the computer, you know. They would, they would access, they'd be like Matthew Broderick in war games. That's how I'm picturing <laughs> it right now. They would set off nuclear weapons. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and correct grammar. Yeah, and correct grammar. Um, so uh, this, this thing that he, that he had invented and started to work on, Stylebook, was sort of his next big project. And that was going to, I, be, you know, I believe his idea was that was going to buy him some writing time and get my mom off his back. When did you, um, when did you become aware that the amount that your mom was drinking was not a normal amount for a person to drink? Um, you know, early, early on, I I sort of, you know, my parents were, um, extremely fun people and, um, I saw drinking as extremely glamorous, extremely fun. More than one time, you know, it was just a regular night and then all of a sudden they were in some crazy getups and costumes and opera and, um, no, you know, it was the kind of thing where I, I remember a friend, in fact, like her parents sort of calling. She was going to, she was her first time spending the night and they called to say like, oh, how's it going? You're not homesick, are you? You know, and nobody answered the phone. The music was too loud. They showed up and we had, my sisters and I and this girl had all gone pool hopping um, because it was a hot night. So we like to go and illegally jump in somebody's pool. And my parents were dancing and drinking, and they were like, the, these parents came by, they're like, Where, where's our child? And my parents had no idea. They didn't even know we were out of the house. They didn't <laughs> even know we'd left that. And so she was like, never allowed over again. So I think at that point where, you know, maybe people weren't really thrilled to have their kids spending the night at our house might have been a clue to that sort of drinking question. When was it not fun for you? Around midnight. You know, it, I mean, there was always a point in the night where it became not fun. And that was absolutely the case with my own drinking as well. Clearly, there was just an hour where it was no longer cool. It was no longer fun. Um, so I always knew that as a kid. I always saw drinking as something that um, had, you know, it, it was like a firework. You know, it, had, it was bright. It was beautiful. And then... It blew out, and some somebody got hurt. Some something happened that was scary. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jeannie Darst. Her new book is called "Fiction Ruined My Family." It's a memoir about growing up in the kind of uh, faded Oriental rug type home that you might have read about in literature or seen in the movies. Only in this one, um, n- no one was all that successful. I, you went to acting school. I did, but not as an actor. I went as a failed student. So SUNY Purchase, State University of New York at Purchase, where I went was an incredibly um, prestigious art school, still is, for opera singers, musicians, filmmakers, actors, and dancers, and also fine artists. But I went because I had nowhere else to go you were sort of the odd duck because you were in a situation where you only knew what might be described as an artistic lifestyle, uh, but you were traveling amongst, you were lumped in with all of these sort of uh, C-average business students. 
Yeah, and and that's right. And also, what you have to remember is that everybody there was, um, if they're artsy, you know, they're in their Doc Martens and their shaved heads and, and you know, um, tattoos or whatever. And I'm wearing, like, my long-backed Izod and my Levi's, you know, um, and my tree torns. So I'm looking like I am the straightest person on the planet, you know. So I'm, I really was a complete misfit. I didn't really fit in for a long time. Was your own drinking already a problem at that point in your life? You know, it was, but um, it was very bingy. And I actually found that it was a, a big downshift at purchase. I didn't think people, I didn't <laughs> think people there knew how to drink at all. <laughs> You know, I was like, God, they're just so driven with their fucking short films and their, you know, <laughs> Mahler and whatever they're studying. Um, Darst to parents. College students <laughs> don't know how to drink right. <laughs> no, it really did. I mean, I was used to like, you know, my sister and I would drink like five or six beers, like warming up to go out at night, you know. And that was actually the only time my dad, that was the only rule he had around drinking was you couldn't drink on your way to a party. You couldn't drink while you were like putting on your makeup and getting your outfit together. So there was no pre-drinking drinking. That was his big thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think I sort of set the scene in the book where my roommates came running up to me the first weekend I was there with a couple packs of Bartles and James and we're going to you know, drink some wine coolers. You want a party? You know, and I honestly just thought, uh, you know, at midnight, you guys are going to be passed out, and I'm not going to be able to get anything else to drink. And that, to me, was what I called alcoholic blue balls. Did you already aspire to the kind of um, classic, noble-slash-pathetic, artistic lifestyle of a, of a beautiful but semi-failed artist by the time you were that age? Like, did you see that as something you wanted? Did you see that as something you wanted to be? Did you see that as inevitability? Or was that not yet on the horizon for you? I was definitely writing short stories and starting to write plays. And I had a writing partner, um, my friend Tammy, and we wrote um, two-woman shows and performed those at Purchase. And I would go into the city and I'd actually do stand-up in the city. Um, and improv, I would take improv classes and no, I don't think I had any kind of failed artist notion. What I thought was that I had a backup plan, which was, I was not going to be like my father. I was going to, um, be a writer, but I was going to support myself as an actor sure. because actors made a lot of money. Sure. Well, you knew <laughs> that the real money is in solo theater. At <laughs> the Cherry Lane Theater. Yeah. So it- as you were living this kind of uh, pauper artist lifestyle in New York, um, your folks' married life was kind of falling apart, and um, especially your mom's life was falling apart because of her drinking. And they ended up in a very odd situation, which is to say that they were um, divorced um, and not getting along, uh, but hanging out together a lot. And sort of taking care of each other? Yeah, they were. And actually, well, they were divorced by the time I went to college. They divorced when you were like 16 or something like that. That's right. So um, at this point, when I was out of college, they were. They were living both in the West Village, 
um, and just calling me up every other day, complaining about the other one. But really, I couldn't sort of get through to them that they were no longer married. And well, maybe they shouldn't have gone out to dinner last night. Maybe they... (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't have watched, you know, the Emmys with her if you think the Emmys are a bunch of crap, you know, or whatever it was. But and then eventually they hatched this plan where my dad moved in back in with my mom because they were going to save some money. And it was insane. And I think it lasted like three days. And one night he went out to get an an ink cartridge for his computer and she just locked him out. That was it. (laughs) Your mom had already started to, like, in your teenage years, strike strike against him by reading popular yeah. fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it really, there really was this sort of, you know, I say she didn't have affairs. You know, she read Barbara Taylor Bradford to, to make my dad insane, and it did. Did you have a point where you started to realize that the things that were going wrong in your parents' life weren't just going on in their life, they were also reflected in your life? Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sort of, I I was very, very keenly aware every time I drank, you know, that I had this thing too. And I knew that from the time I was 14, 15, um, that I was an alcoholic. And so I had to really try hard to not become my mother um, and I, and I just, that was just a subconscious, like, how am I going to control this? And, and then once I realized that I was also sort of a creative person, in other words, I wasn't good at anything else. Um, I also sort of thought, well, how am I going to do this and, and, and not become my dad? When we come back on The Sound of Young America, Jean Darst talks about laying off the booze. I actually had a lot of things I did want to do and I couldn't do any of them. So... The, the trade-off for me is worth it because I got to do all these things that I'd been talking about for years. That's in just a second on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days, Gift memberships available. Shipments begin December 1st with delivery before Christmas. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at Ask.Metafilter.com. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. And I'm Jordan Morris, boy detective. Every week on our show, Jordan Jesse Go, I would say that we share a little slice of our hearts. Yeah. And a little peek at our dicks. <laughs> but every week we have a podcast where we have fun and funny conversations with guests from the worlds of comedy, film, television. It's all online at MaximumFun.org or just search for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Jeannie Darst, is the author of the memoir, Fiction Ruined My Family. Most of the folks that I know who quit drinking at some point in their life um, are not quick to talk about the positive parts. And I feel like you are very frank about the stuff that you liked about drinking. (laughs) You mean that when people quit drinking, they're not quick to talk about what they miss? That's what you mean. Yeah, exactly. What's, yeah. What sucks about being sober? Yeah, I mean yeah. people who people who you know my uh, 
I, I could probably just you know, like my dad's a recovering alcoholic, and I I don't remember a lot of lectures about really awesome times when he was wasted, <laughs> like really sweet parties he went to where he was super trashed. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think that um, I think that's not real, and I think that um, it's a trade off. It's a trade off, and anybody who says like, "Oh my God, being sober is so fantastic." It's not so fantastic. If it was so fantastic, I'd be wasted right now. I'd be like drinking a beer and, you know, ogling somebody and also doing this interview. But I can't do this interview and do those things. So it's a trade-off. And I think that people are a little precious about sobriety and precious about like it's, it's sort of this like superstition that if I say anything bad about sobriety, I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to go out and you know, fall, have a relapse or something. And I, I just don't think that's honest, you know, and I think it's pretty boring too. It's superior. And... What was it in your life that made that trade-off worthwhile? Because unlike a lot of people who, I, who have heard um, talk about getting sober and they'll say like, all I wanted to do was drink 24 hours a day. You know, I didn't care about anybody. You know, it's like, I actually had a lot of things I did want to do and I couldn't do any of them. And it was becoming less and less possible to even to do anything like pay the rent or take care of myself in any way. So the, the trade-off for me is worth it because I got to do all these things that I'd been talking about for years, talking about doing. And so I got to, in some way, you know, realize all of these things. And, and I remember there was actually a moment where when I was thinking about my own drinking, you know, I sort of thought, like, would I be okay with this if I was my kid? Which is weird, you know, because I was not okay, obviously, with my mom's drinking. It was incredibly disturbing. And I thought, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be okay with this kind of deal if I was my own kid, sort of. And I realized in that, in that moment that I couldn't be a mom and drink. And I didn't even know that I wanted to be a mother. But then now, obviously, that trade-off is that I'm a mom and it's huge. It's huge. It also seems like being sober gives you the opportunity to live a life where you can, um, you know, artistically as a creator, build more and more and build upon the foundation of the things that you did before and create more and more and better and better rather than the opposite, which was the pattern of life that you observed in your folks, which is things falling apart things going the opposite direction right right and i think as a kid i never saw anything get better i mean to the point where honestly like if a light bulb blew my mom would practically just throw it in the garbage you know um there just was never this sense of triumph it was always that things got worse and then people just evaporated and there there is that possibility that that things can get better and you know, and then I also think that as, as an artist, you have, there's a lot of energy that you have in your youth where you create. And then whether you're drinking or not, obviously drinking is not helping. Um, it, it takes a lot more work to, to crank out work. You know, it's a lot harder. And so, you know, to do that while you're drinking, I think is, it's a real problem for a lot of artists, I think. And I think that, I, I don't know, I look around and half of Brooklyn is sober. You know, and and making work, and 
So I don't know. It seems to it seems to be good if you're talking about aging and creating work and being sober. Yeah. Well, Jeannie, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the San Diego America. Thanks for having me, Jesse. It's Je- great. Jeannie Darst's new memoir is called Fiction Ruined My Family. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is Colin Walzak. That's Colin with two L's for those of you keeping score at home. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always send me an email. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. And always remember, all good radio hosts have a signature sign-off.